Take your copy of God's Word and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We will begin reading in verse 10 and we will complete this chapter this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 10. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus The same earnest care I have for you, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. (coughs) Greed, which Brian has just spoken to us about from Acts chapter 8, greed is anything but a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus, in His most scalding rebuke of the religious leaders in all of Scripture, Matthew 23, said... Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but, the in, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You can find the same thing, by the way, spoken by our Lord in Luke chapter 11, verse 39. Do we view greed that way? As... Such a deadly sin. Our culture certainly does not. In fact, greed is actually respected in our society. And I dare say that mentality has bled over into church-going people. Paul, in his first canonical letter to the Corinthian church, writes this, quote, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. That's surprising. Or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat? With such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Can you can you imagine that? That Paul tells them a greedy person should be purged from the membership role, excluded right along with those guilty of all these other sins that we aren't so surprised about. 
But greed is a serious crime in the eyes of God, according to Scripture. Well, here's the background of the text before us this morning. The church at Corinth had pledged to help in a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, but that collection effort had stalled. Part of it may have been their greed, but it was not only their greed. False teachers had slipped into the church and were seeking to undermine the apostolic ministry of the Apostle Paul. They did this in a number of ways, and one of those ways was to accuse Paul of being dishonest with money, lacking the integrity relative to this offering to the poor, even skimming off the top of it, perhaps, to line his own pockets. And later on in this letter, Paul is going to defend his integrity in this matter in the strongest of terms. But he shouldn't have taken a letter. Remember, Paul was instrumental in the saving of their souls. He is the very instrument through which God brought them to faith in Christ. Paul had founded this church and he had stayed with them the better part of two years after its founding. And in all of that time, he had given them no reason whatsoever to doubt his integrity and every reason to trust him. And yet, when these false teachers had brought these false charges against Paul, it seems that at least some in the church were willing to entertain that idea. Despite everything they'd seen of Paul's character. And all the while, over in Jerusalem, there are poor saints starving. That's the terrible thing about the entire matter. While the collection matter is being stalled in Corinth, people are starving in Jerusalem. The truth of it is that the false teachers were the ones seeking to line their pockets, not Paul. Paul spoke about that back in chapter 2, verse 17. He wrote, We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's Word, but men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Paul was defending himself back there in chapter 2. No question about that. But he was pointing a finger directly at the false teachers in Corinth. Men he refers to as Peddlers of God's Word. Individuals in the ministry for nothing more than what they can get out of it. To the saints in Thessalonica, Paul said, quote, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. End quote. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5. Paul was honest. The Corinthian church should have known it. And yet, here we are studying this letter, which is a defense of the ministry of the Apostle Paul of all people. And I'm sure you'll recall Paul began after a lengthy defense of his ministry in the first seven chapters. He begins in chapter 8 readdressing this issue about this collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He had given them instructions back in 1 Corinthians 16 how to collect the money so that when he got there they wouldn't have to go through the collection process. That means they had already pledged this money. Paul was just telling them how to take it up. But now the effort had stalled and most likely because of these lies being spread by these false teachers and their doubts about Paul. So here he is having to readdress the very thing that should have already happened. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first eight verses in this chapter when Paul offers the illustration, the example of the dirt poor Macedonians desiring to participate in this collection giving what they really didn't even have to give. This was in contrast, by the way, to the affluent city of Corinth where there were actually many rich. More on that here in a bit. Last week, we studied one of the heavier, heavier theological sentences in all the Bible. 
For you know, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. I know some of you were moved by the study of that text because you came to me and told me about that. It is absolutely humbling to consider just how generous our holy and sovereign God has been to us. And the example of Jesus, the one who considered others before himself, is the greatest example of Christian generosity in the history of the world. And based on that example alone, the Christians should have been willing to reaffirm their pledge to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now that sort of catches us up to speed on where we are here in this text we just read. The title of my sermon this morning is, Finish What You Started. Finish What You Started. In this text, Paul offers more reasons for the Corinthians to give and makes the case that he is not trying to coerce them for the wrong reasons. All right, let's, let's dig in here. Verse 10. In this matter, this is, that's, that's the collection that he began back in 1 Corinthians 16 and he's, he's readdressing here. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish, what, finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing of what you have. Now, these verses actually contain what we might call the thesis statement of chapters 8 and 9. The, the central directive of the Apostle Paul in this section, in these two chapters. Finish what you started. And there's no particular teaching of Jesus that Paul could point to that demanded this collection. This was voluntary. But Paul offers his inspired, authoritative, apostolic judgment here. I think we'd do well to listen. Certainly the Corinthian saints would have done well to listen. This pledge by the saints in Corinth, the collection of this love offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem, was started a year ago, or, or really the underlying Greek there just means last year. So it could have been up to 23 months ago, actually. There's been some discussion of how much time elapsed between the writing of First and Second Corinthians. It was around two years or less. It could have been significantly less. So that's why Paul says last year. Anyway, the church in Corinth had initially committed to, to give this money. They wanted to. They had good intentions. But good intentions aren't putting food in the mouth of the poor saints in Jerusalem. If the saints in Corinth merely committed to give it, pledged to give it, we might say, but never actually followed through with their pledge, what good is that doing anybody? It's not. There's no good in saying, I'll cut your grass if you never show up with the lawnmower. And there's no good in saying, I'm going to feed those poor people if you never put food on their table. So Paul writes, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing of what you have. Completing it out of what you have. Finish what you started. Good intentions count for nothing. James writes, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed. Be filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? He follows that by saying, So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's pretty strong place to put that sentence, I would say. And it's really quite similar to what Paul has written here in our text this morning. Good intentions aren't worth anything if you don't follow through with them. Corinthian saints. Verse 12, he says, For if the readiness is there, 
It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, the, the Macedonians that we looked at in the first eight verses were actually the exception to what Paul is saying here. Back there in verse 3, Paul said that the Macedonians gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Paul, Paul is not requiring that from the saints in Corinth. But the saints in Corinth did need the heart of the Macedonians. That's one thing they needed for sure. And we do too. We need that giving, generous heart. But nobody was being asked by Paul to take food off their own table, out of their own, out of their own children's mouth, and give it to the poor in Jerusalem. That's not what's going on here. Paul says if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not. Have. He's not asking them to give more than they were able to give. He's not being overly burdensome to them. And then notice he says, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden. Like his intention is not to make the Corinthians destitute in order to enrich the people in Jerusalem. That is not at all what's going on here. Why would some accept that charge? Why? why? why we know this accusation came from the false teachers. I mean, that, that's, that's clear, but that's not what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, why might this charge that Paul is trying to enrich the saints in Jerusalem while robbing from the saints in Corinth, why might that charge have gained traction? I actually think the answer is very obvious when you just stop and think about it for a second. Look, Paul is calling on Gentile churches to send relief money to believing Jews back in Israel. Paul is a Jew. And so it made that charge easy to believe that he's, he's been sent out. He's going around to all these Gentile cities trying to just get them to send money back to the Jews in Jerusalem. But that's not what Paul is doing at all. Paul is trying to get those with plenty to help those with, with nothing. Now again, look, Paul had proven himself long prior to this. But we're fallen. We love a good story. I mean, that's why the news channels are getting richer every day, right? Paul denies that he has any wrong motive whatsoever here. In fact, we're going to see in just a moment that Paul plans to send Titus, a Gentile believer, to oversee this collection. So he has, he has no wrong motive whatsoever. He's not a Jew trying to enrich the Jews off the back of the Gentiles. He says, no, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Oh, Paul's just a communist. No, that's, that's not what's going on here at all. Certainly those communistic types would turn to a place like this and rip it kicking and screaming out of context to make it say that, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Look, the fairness of which Paul writes, equality, some translations render it here. This is not so much an equality or, or a fairness between the saints in Corinth and the saints in Jerusalem. Like, Paul is not trying to equalize their financial portfolios. That's not what's going on here at all. David Garland writes this, quote, Paul is not talking about the purpose of their giving to create equality, but the ground of their giving from equality, end quote. In, in other words, there were some in Corinth that had a surplus extra, more than they needed. And those people had an extra ability to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. Not everybody in Corinth had that ability. 
So the fairness that he speaks of is proportionate giving. He's not trying to equalize the saints in Jerusalem with the saints in Corinth so that everybody just has the same amount. That's not it at all. We actually know from 1 Corinthians, specifically in those abuses that we read about in chapter 11 that surround the Lord's table there, we know that there were some who were very rich and there were some who were very poor there. And so they were divided. Paul is saying that those who had the surplus should be in a better position to help those in need in Jerusalem. A person should give based on what a person has. That's the fairness Paul is talking about here in this text. This is not communism at all. By the way, the fact that this is voluntary and not a demand should tell you that this is not communism. He's certainly not suggesting that the Roman Empire needs to enforce this. That's not it at all. John Calvin writes of this verse, quote, I acknowledge indeed that there is not enjoined upon us an equality of such a kind as to make it unlawful for the rich to live in any degree of greater elegance than the poor. In other words, Calvin says it's not sinful for one person to have more in savings than another person. That's not, or a bigger house. That's not a sin. But Calvin goes on saying, quote, But it is an equality is to be observed thus that no one is to be allowed to starve and no one is to hoard his abundance at the expense of defrauding others. End quote. Amen. That's the point. If you're a Christian with plenty and you got a brother who has nothing, help him out. Help him out. Have a heart. So what Paul is talking about here is anything but communism. The rich in the church are to give enough to the poor so that they have food on their table. That's all he's saying. If you have excess and your brother has need, be there for him. Now there is some debate as to what Paul means here when he says your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Uh, There's really two possible interpretations of this verse. The first possible interpretation is you help them now and then if If they rise to the top and their portfolio gets better and you sink down, then later on they can help you. A lot of commentators believe that's what Paul's saying. I don't think that's necessarily correct. That sounds a bit self-serving in a passage where Paul is calling calling them to deny their self, right, and help your brother. I think the second view is likely that Paul is telling them that they have benefited from the Jews spiritually, and therefore they should return the favor by helping them in this offering. David Garland again writes, quote, Christians cannot sit by and let Christians starve who sent the gospel their way. End quote. Amen. And that's precisely what Paul says in Romans 15 about this very collection. He writes there. This, Romans 15 is written later than 2 Corinthians, but he says this, Romans 15... For Macedonia and Achaia, which would have included Corinth, by the way, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they, the Gentiles, ought to uh, also to be of service to them, the Jews, in material blessings, end quote. That seems clearly to be what Paul is saying in Romans 15, and I think it's likely that's what Paul is saying here. Kent Hughes says, quote, Through Paul, the Jerusalem church had given the Corinthians the riches of the new covenant a far greater gift, end quote. Amen. Amen. It is interesting that Paul brings up the Exodus generation here. Uh, uh, he, that's what he says there at the end about those who gathered had enough. 
This, this is a reference to the Exodus generation and the daily provision of manna. Uh, you may recall God instructed those Jews that came out of Egypt in a very strict manner. Exodus 16, gather of it the manna, each of you as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer, that's about two quarts, according to the number of the person's that each of you has in his tent. Moses goes on to write, And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, according to what they had in their tent. But when they measured it out with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So God's plan worked. The problem is that generation, though. We know what happened with them, right? They started hoarding. They said, you know what, let's, let's gather a little more than an omer. Let's stick some in the freezer and see what happens to it in the, until the morning. Of course, they didn't have a freezer, of course. I'm being a little facetious. But they started hoarding. They woke up the next morning, and the book of Exodus tells us in chapter 16, verse 20, that it bred worms and stank, and Moses was very angry with them. Why would Paul bring that up here? It's not some deep theological truth. Paul is simply saying, don't hoard what is God's. Don't hoard when your brother has a need, like the people of Moses' day, especially when your brother doesn't have food on his table. What a lesson for those of us that live in a land of plenty. Verse 16 Paul then moves on to how this is about to happen. How the collection effort is going to be restarted. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So Titus, by God's grace had developed a love for the saints in Corinth. Remember, Titus just got back from Corinth. He delivered the severe letter to them. And now Paul actually says Titus has the same earnest care that the apostle had for them himself. That's really saying something. Now Paul did not demand that Titus return. He didn't have to. He didn't even have to nudge him. In fact... Titus wanted to go back to Corinth of his own accord, Paul says here. So really, Paul is just giving Titus a recommendation to this work, his personal stamp of approval. Titus was going to be overseeing this collection, so it was, it was important for the saints in Colossae to trust him. But Titus was not coming by himself. He was going to have help. Notice verse 18. With him, with Titus, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So this unnamed brother is going to accompany Titus and help with this collection effort. Now I know some of you are sitting there right now and the wheels are spinning and you want to know who this guy is because you have an inquiring mind. I feel your pain. That's how I think too. That's a futile enterprise. Let me give you a list of people that have been thrown out there by various commentators. You can go research all this yourself. Here are the possibilities of who this brother is. Luke, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Aristarchus, Sopater, Secundus, Trophimus, and Tychicus. May not be any of those. But those are names that people have thrown into the hat as to who this brother is. Look, we don't know who it is. Doesn't matter who it is. But whomever he is, he is said here to be famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Now when we think of the word famous, we think of someone who rises 
to their own fame and they are the hero in the narrative. That's not what's going on here in the text at all. This man is famous in the sense that he is well known. And what a great thing to be known for. What a great thing to be remembered for. He is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Look, people are famous and well known for things a whole lot worse than this right here. This man, whoever he is, has proven himself faithful in the ministry. This is a trustworthy individual. In fact, multiple churches had even recommended him for this work, according to Paul. This unnamed brother would accompany Paul, Titus, and others to Jerusalem with this offering, which Paul here refers to as an act of grace. Listen, I know I stressed this before in this study, but generosity is a part of our service to God. It is something that the indwelling Holy Spirit leads us to do. Greediness is a characteristic of worldlings not believers in Jesus. This money was not being donated so that Paul could brag about it, right? He's not going to snap a picture with his phone and post it on social media and then claim, look how humble I am, I'm giving money away, right? No, this relief effort was for the glory of the Lord Himself. And not only that, Paul says it was to show our good will. You know, one of the things that existed in the early churches is that there was often division. And, and it, it was unnecessary, of course, but it was not unexpected. There was division between ethnic groups. I mean, we see the gospel being carried from the Jews to the Samaritans to the, the God-fearers and ultimately to the pagan Gentiles. You just ought to expect that there's going to be some division specifically between Jews and Gentiles. But we know there was division between rich and poor too, even in the church at Corinth. Well, this offering from affluent Gentiles to poor Jews should serve to at least help bridge the gap, to show goodwill. Listen, it is important for us to bridge gaps with other believers as long as we can do so without sacrificing biblical truth. And we're never going to sacrifice the truth to bridge a gap. But we ought to be able to relate to a person who is purchased by the blood of Jesus just like we are. We're in the same family. But notice why Paul is going to all this trouble. You say, man, why don't Paul just go get it and, and go and get on with it? Paul, come on. Well, he, there's a reason why he's doing what he's doing. Look at verse 20. We take this course so that. He's telling you why he's doing what he's doing. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So it's, it's a shame, really, that Paul is having to go to all of this trouble. He, he finds himself defending his integrity having to take these extra precautions because some in the church had questioned his integrity at the provoking of the false teachers that had infiltrated the church. Paul, Paul shouldn't be having to do this. And remember, like I said earlier, all the while, the poor saints in Jerusalem are being sacrificed at the altar of false accusations. They're sitting there poor while the church at Corinth is saying, we may not ought to help Paul. Well, you're not, it's not so much Paul anyway. It's these poor saints in Jerusalem. Anyway, Paul, because of all of these false teachers that had infiltrated, he's now forced to take these extra measures to keep his name clear. Look, when a, when a faithful man like Paul is accused of embezzling money... It's not merely Paul that's going to be hurt. It's the message of the gospel. And ultimately, the reputation of God that is at stake. Paul is aware. And so he's going to all of this. These people should have trusted him. I'm sure we can agree there. But he felt this was necessary. 
Now, we don't, we don't know whether Paul took these precautions with all of the other churches. We, we just aren't told. I guess he didn't because he didn't need to, but that's conjecture. Nevertheless, at, at troubled Corinth, Paul is sending representatives who are well-known, men that had proven to be trustworthy, just to make sure nobody thought he was skimming off the top of the offering. He distanced himself from the money. By the way, this is probably going to be a, a rather large offering that is going to be given because the, the saints at Corinth were affluent. They had money. And not only that, it wasn't only going to be their money, but a collection from all of the churches in that area. But Paul here calls it a generous gift. It'd be hard for him to rob from a $20 bill, but it'd be a whole lot easier to take from thousands and thousands and thousands, right? Well, that made it easier then for the false prophets to level charges against Paul. False charges, but charges nevertheless. So he, he removes himself from the collection in Corinth, at least initially. He is going to Jerusalem, but from the actual collection, he distanced himself so that he could aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Now, some believe Paul's actually quoting Proverbs 3, 4 here. It doesn't read exactly that way in our English Bibles, which is translated from the Hebrew. But if you went to the Greek Septuagint, this is very similar. It says there to think of what is noble in the sight of the Lord and of people. Maybe Paul did have that in mind. I don't know. But what Paul wrote is inspired nevertheless, so it doesn't so much matter. Well, Titus isn't only going with the one unidentified brother. Verse 22 tells us that there is another. With him we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So there's this this other unidentified brother being sent along with Titus and the first nameless brother. Rather than being merely chosen by the churches, this man is sent by the churches. We'll see that here in a moment. But he also seems to be a man who is closely related to Paul. Paul has watched his life. He has been proven to be earnest amongst many tests. He says here he has been often tested and found earnest in many matters. I would think that includes financial matters. This is a man with a good mind. Paul says he's tested him and he's seen him be earnest, so we believe this is at least someone who is, who is a brother of Paul, not just a representative of the church. This man, whoever he is, we don't know, he's responsible He's dependable, he's blameless, and so he is the right man for this work. He was excited to do it. The man was excited to do it because Paul says that he had great confidence in the saints in Corinth. Now, I don't know whether this man knew the saints in Corinth or not. We, we aren't told. Maybe this information came from Paul or Titus even who had just been in Corinth. Nevertheless, now this man has great confidence and so he's excited to go take part in this collection. And then Paul begins to sort of wrap up what we call chapter 8, verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So Paul says, okay, I'm going to recommend them one more time. One more recommendation of these men. He starts with Titus. Titus was Paul's partner. Essentially, Titus would be representing not only Titus, but Paul as well. He's going to be representing both of them there. But notice where their heart was. Paul says, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. Not for Paul's benefit. Not for Titus's benefit. Not to line their own pockets. But for the benefit of the saints in Corinth. Look, that is the goal of those who honestly labor in Christian ministry. If they're worth their salt. 
We work at teaching here, not for us, but for you. When you don't grow, when you don't mature, we're grieved at that. Perhaps that's one of the reasons the writer of Hebrews says, quote, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. End quote. Paul had done a lot of groaning because of the saints in Corinth, but he's telling them, look, these are good men. Let them do this work with joy. As for our brothers, the two unnamed brothers, Paul says they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. It's interesting. The word messengers there is actually translated from the Greek word apostolos. You might hear the, the word apostle there. They are apostles of the churches, so to speak. Paul, Paul is not saying that they were of the twelve. Don't misunderstand. There are twelve names on the New Jerusalem, the name of the twelve apostles. There are only twelve men and Paul that were included in that. But these were sent ones from the churches. That's his point. These were sent ambassadors of the churches. These men represented the churches. These were not Paul's hand-picked yes men. These were faithful men chosen by various congregations to carry forth this effort. And the fact that Paul calls them the glory of Christ is quite a commendation. I mean, this at least suggests that their lives reflected the life of Jesus and the gospel that much. They are the glory of Christ. So these men then were worthy of respect. They had earned that. They were recommended not only by Paul, but by the churches, which meant they had the backing of Christ Himself. Verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Like, like he had expressed to Titus before when he'd sent him to Corinth with the severe letter. So here Paul expresses his confidence in the saints at Corinth following through with this, this pledge that they made for these poor saints in Jerusalem. And he's essentially saying, prove me right. Show these men your love for all the saints. Look, these false teachers were lining their pockets. And they were hurting the cause of the gospel. They had infiltrated the church in Corinth and they really had one opponent. One man they needed out of the way to gain a complete foothold in the church, and that man was the Apostle Paul. If he went down, then all of the people that partnered with him went down with him. Few things will destroy a ministry more quickly than an accusation of misusing funds. And these false apostles knew that's the heart of the matter. And so they, they gave these charges against Paul. Here's the crazy thing. They were the ones guilty of lining their own pockets with money from these poor people. They were the ones who were peddlers of the Word of God. They had not put in the time at Corinth that Paul had put in. He was worthy of respect. Paul had integrity. But for some reason, these saints were in entertaining these charges. Therefore, Paul goes to all these lengths to make sure that the money gets to the poor saints in Jerusalem where it needs to be, and he's viewed as innocent in the matter. All right, let's see if we can find a few applications in this text as we bring this sermon to a close. I know I'm standing between you and lunch, but that's okay. It's just on the other side of the wall. First, if anything, in anything, but especially in Christianity... Finishing is as important as beginning. These saints had begun this collection, zealous to help, 
but it's, they stalled out before it was completed. John MacArthur writes this, quote, One of the most vexing aspects of the ministry is dealing with those who make a good beginning but never finish what they start. It is not easy to carry things through to completion. It takes discipline, devotion, and faithfulness, end quote. Amen. It is, it is important for us to follow through with our commitments just as a witness of Christ and God's faithfulness. But even more than that, what MacArthur is really saying here is that growth into Christian maturity should be something that is obvious for all to see. I like the word trajectory. You've probably heard me use it. It refers to the path of a moving object. How is your trajectory as far as your faith is concerned? Do you know more about the Bible today than you did the day that you started? But the Bible is more than just a textbook where you learn knowledge. So really the real kicker is, are you applying what you have learned? Is your life now more a reflection of the fruit of the Spirit than when you started months ago, years ago, decades ago? And just a reminder, here's what I'm asking. Do you have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control than you did when you began your Christian journey? If not, there is a cause for concern. Alright, that's point number one. Second point, unnamed servants like these two men in this text are not nameless in heaven. They're not named here in this text, you know. But one day, they will be rewarded accordingly by the one that matters. Listen, child of God, be satisfied with that. God knows your service. Don't be concerned what man thinks about that. Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Listen, these men may not be named and your service may not be seen. But God, who sees all, He knows. And that ought to be enough to satisfy every one of us. Point three. It's important, according to the Bible, to have trustworthy men set in position to handle financial matters. Spending that is needed for various things in the church. Look, we all just show up and poof, it's here, right? Now that's not how things work. In Scripture, these men are known as deacons. Look, John MacArthur writes this, again, quote, Biblically sound stewardship programs will be led by a plurality of godly men. The church's finances are to be overseen by wise, theologically sound, spiritually mature men who agree to seek the mind of God, end quote. So deacons, biblically, should be trustworthy because they have to make important decisions, working with the eldership so that the spiritual leaders can do their part in praying and studying and aren't distracted by other things. We just studied Acts 6 when the Hellenists were complaining about their widows being mistreated. Here's what the apostles said, quote, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. End quote. Acts 6, 2-4. And if we've seen in our passage the appointing of honorable men of integrity... It reduces scandal. It reduces any idea that unethical things are happening. Now, I'm not suggesting these men in these passage were deacons. They weren't. They were working for various churches. But what they were doing for a group of churches is at least akin to what deacons do in a local church. Listen, biblically, God's design is for a church to have deacons. 
And the more that we've grown here, the more importance I see of that. All right, fourth and final point. This is the primary point in the text. This is the easy one. This is the one that steps on all our toes, I fear, and hits us right in the gut. The gut being a synonym for pocketbook. As believers, as those that have received the grace of God, we are to be generous. Period. That's part of our service. In verse 7 and verse 19, Paul calls it an act of grace. Generosity is an act of grace. Now this begins with helping people in the family of God. Saved people. But it doesn't end there. Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia saying, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Guys, listen, being able to give, being able to help a brother in need is a privilege. We should be asking God in prayer for such opportunities and thank Him when He opens the door for us to help another. Because according to Jesus, even a drink of cold water to one of His children will be remembered in the day of judgment. Is we need to be willing to take out of our own pocket and help. We don't always go to the church and take out of the church coffers. If you've got plenty and someone needs lunch, just get them lunch. And lest I be misunderstood, let me be clear. The lack of a generous giving spirit may very well reveal that we have never experienced the generous giving spirit that God gives to humans. Remember, back in verse 9, Paul said, following through with this collection would prove by the earnestness of others that their love was genuine. He reiterated the same thing in verse 24. Guys, the same is true for us. Greed is a fruit of an unredeemed heart. It is not a fruit of the Spirit of God that indwells every child of God. This is one of those passages that you read at first and you think, ain't nothing here for me. Now that's just because we weren't looking at it right. There is a lot here for us. I just pray as we dismiss and and walk out those doors to serve God this next week, I hope we are known as a generous, spirit-filled group of people. Stand with me if you will.